This is JAMDA on the go. Your review of the content featured in JAMDA, the research-focused monthly journal of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now here's our host, Dr. Wayne Saltzman. Welcome to JAMDA on the Go. This podcast will spotlight articles from the February 2021 issue of JAMDA, the Journal of the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. We will be speaking again with JAMDA Co-Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Philip Sloan, and Associate Editor, Dr. Mallory Brown. Dr. Sloan is a family physician and geriatrician with a master's degree in public health. He is the Elizabeth and Oscar Goodwin Distinguished Professor of Family Medicine and Geriatrics at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and co-director for the program on aging, disability, and long-term care at the Cecil G. Shep Center for Health Services Research. Dr. Brown is also a family physician and geriatrician at the University of North Carolina, where she is an associate professor of family medicine and director of the residency training program. Dr. Sloan and Brown, welcome back to JAMDA On The Go. Thank you. Happy to be here again. Thank you. So the February issue of JAMDA 2021 is packed with amazing articles and we are going to be giving our uh, listeners and our readers a uh, a bit of a taste and that taste will include a discussion around social connections in nursing home residents uh, during the pandemic um, a model for improving delivery of palliative care in the community uh, who knew it but jamda also looks at things like driving and driving with folks who have mild cognitive impairment and uh, strategies and ongoing discussion about predicting falls in nursing home residents. So let's get started. You know, our first topic is one that um, everyone has been thinking about uh, in long-term care, especially our providers who are dedicated to, uh, to our residents. And that's the question around resident isolation from the prolonged lockdowns that occurred during COVID-19. Um, very interesting article, article uh, Dr. Brown. Tell us your thoughts after reading this review by, uh, by Bethel and others in the February 2021 issue of JAMDA. Sure, I was, I was really excited to read this article. Um, as you said, this is something that's definitely on my mind and I'm, bringing it up with my patients almost daily. So um, certainly really interesting work. I think many of us have been somewhere, whether it's work, the grocery store, out for a walk over the past 11 months, and we've run into someone we know. I don't know about you, but I assume for most of us, bumping into that person we know might have given us sort of a warm feeling or, or at very least a sense of connection. Most people listening today to this are likely able to leave their home to go get groceries or takeout, perhaps go to work, or have had some freedom in choosing who is in their bubble. Now we consider our patients in long-term care settings. So, so much has been done to keep our residents safe. But this includes limiting visitors, limiting trips off campus, and certainly the day-to-day -day activities that keep people connected. 
I have a dear patient who recently shared with me that he'd spent most of his weekend alone in his apartment. He needed something from his car, so he took the elevator down to the first floor. And he happened to share the elevator ride with another member of the community. The two made small talk for the minute it took for the elevator to get down to the ground floor. But the patient shared with me that that connection made his whole mood shift. I think it's it's just moments like these that we're seeing far too many of, unfortunately. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I think we can all agree that good social connection seems to be associated with better health and well-being. This scoping review aimed to summarize the literature that's out there linking social connection to mental health outcomes, specifically in long-term care residents. It also aimed to identify strategies to help build and maintain social connection in this population during COVID-19. After a detailed search of the literature, 133 studies were included in the review, of which 61 tested the association between social connection and mental health outcomes. The most commonly investigated aspects of social connection were social support, social engagement, loneliness, and social network. They further categorized the studies according to reported mental health outcomes, including depression, responsive behaviors such as mood, affect, and emotions, anxiety, medication use, cognitive decline, death, anxiety, boredom, suicidal thoughts, psychiatric morbidity, and daily crying. They took the review a step further and asked, what interventions or strategies support social connection for people living in long-term care homes in the context of infectious disease outbreaks like COVID-19? The review found 12 interventions that were further investigated as potentially useful. These included managing pain, addressing vision and hearing loss, sleeping at night, novel, I know, not day, (laughs) Finding opportunities for creative expression, exercise, maintaining cultural and religious practices, gardening, visiting with pets, laughing together, communicating by technology, addressing communication impairments, and reminiscing about previously more positive times, perhaps. Overall, the study supports that published research investigating long-term care residents has already linked good social connection to better mental health health outcomes. The authors note that their work underscores the importance of social connection for the mental health of residents in long-term care homes. The findings generally rely on incomplete evidence, but that doesn't diminish that it's absolutely imperative to address social connection always, but particularly now in the midst of an infectious disease outbreak. You know, Dr. Brown, after reading this article, I was left with the um, the thought that probably every geriatrician, although not all um, facilities are um, are you know have geriatricians within them providing care, but in geriatrics, you know, we're kind of taught um, you know one individual at a time, and a lot of these findings were not completely um, you know totally robust in one area or or another, you know, around depression and anxiety and things like that. At the end of the day, you know, do you really just believe that we just need to just tackle who this person is and where they are now and what they need 
now uh, instead of this whole panel of of stuff you know what's your approach yeah I, I completely agree with you i think that um we can have a menu and we can have a panel of approaches but at the end of the day um we can't necessarily hold a patient's hand and feel safe about it quite yet and that um that's its own separate set of problems but that's part of this like touch isolation social isolation and we really do just need to focus on the person in front of us um and there's lots of them but how do we help them to combat depression combat loneliness combat anxiety um, and so i think this article gives us some context for some of the different approaches that we might take but we just continue to do the great work that we as geriatricians do and meet the patient where they are. I'd like to segue now to another area that has been a focus uh, during COVID-19 near and dear to my heart, and that is the delivery of palliative care. Um, Dr. Sloan, I was thrilled to see the number of articles that you all have included in the February 2021 issue of JAMDA on palliative care. Tell us about the one that you've chosen for us now. Well, Wayne, this is one of my favorites, I think, because it's practical and it's about clinical care. Um, it's from the Netherlands, which, as our audience may know, has the best developed physician long-term care workforce, including a nursing home-focused specialty that includes nearly as many members in that nation of 17 million people as all the geriatricians in the United States. Yes, yes. The paper describes what it calls an integrative palliative care pathway. Its goal is to get primary care docs involved in palliative care earlier by providing a more formal structure for initiating palliative care at the primary physician level. It begins with early and proactive identification of the palliative phase. They use the well-known question, would I be surprised if this patient were to die in the next 12 months mm -hmm. to identify patients who are at high risk? If, the, if your answer is no, then a physician will try to engage the palliative care pathway for the patient. Hmm. Of course, the success of that conversation depends a lot on how the palliative care pathway is introduced and perceived. Right. And the article, unfortunately, doesn't explain that key issue. Here in the U.S., I think the word hospice has developed a bad connotation, you know, so I would be interested in knowing if they have a softer way of bringing that topic up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think they might. Um, Another component is a series of conversations about end-of-life wishes and needs, employing shared decision-making and feeding into a multidisciplinary proactive care program. They also, once the patient signs up, they have a multidisciplinary assessment and a regular multidisciplinary meetings um, and some coordination of care. But to me, you know, it's the conversation that I think is quite interesting because it's part of the palliative care process Whereas in the U.S., that conversation has to take place before or during hospice enrollment. So this aspect of the Netherlands program allows entry earlier in the end-of-life trajectory because people don't have to have already decided all the issues around kind of how they want their um, care to go. And I think it's a critical difference between hospice and this program. The last two components are, you know, post-mortem intervention with the family and continuous monitoring. Many of these things sound like the kinds of things hospice does. Like hospice, yeah. 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 
Um, but something is different. You know, the paper describes a study comparing 37 primary care physicians who were trained in and offered the pathway and a comparison group who didn't have the pathway available. They had three main findings. One was that physicians in the pathway group got patients involved in palliative care sooner. 73% of the pathway group's patients had their care goals and the care provision modified three or more months before they died compared to 52% of the comparison group patients. The second finding was that significantly more patients died at home in the pathway group than the comparison group. And finally, pathway physicians were more satisfied with the timeliness of their own processes of care and of their management of the dying process, all important things. On the other hand, the patients had more outpatient encounters, you know, the more kind of system costs, but just as many hospitalizations. Hmm. And this is different than what we see with hospice in the United States, which is promoted because it helps save hospitalizations. Um, but the numbers in the study were small and they were already functioning in a system that makes less use of the hospital than we do in the U.S. Right. And the U.S. has that kind of clear distinction between no curative care, if you wish, for hospice care in order to solicit the benefit. So what what's the take-home message? Well, the take-home message most in my mind after reading this paper is that physicians will identify patients early for palliative care if they have a good option to provide, to provide the patients who say yes. My question is whether in this country hospice offers that option or whether we need something without the image of finality that limits hospice enrollment. And I know there's a lot of discussion about this. We know palliation should start much earlier. So Wayne, Mallory, do you have thoughts from your experience in multiple settings, you know? Well, I, I, I'm gonna offer a little cheater here in to say that um, my organization is part of the Hospice Value-Based Insurance Design Program in which we are addressing all of these things because uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services are very interested in this. But uh, to me, this article was fascinating, but it was preaching to the preacher. And that is, I would love for primary care physicians in this country to um, be educated a little bit more mm -hmm. so that palliative care does not equal hospice care. Because <laughs> every time I try to get a palliative care doctor to sign up to palliative care, they say to me, it's not time yet. And not time yet to me means that they're thinking and it's not time yet for hospice. So love to get folks in earlier on the trajectory. We could have so much more of an impact in palliative care if we actually got to folks um, before um, before their demise was um, was imminent, mm -hmm. totally agree. And you know, the primary care docs would probably feel better about it too. Absolutely, mm. absolutely. And now, a word from our sponsor, U.S. Post Acute Care. Let's talk for a minute about goals of care conversations. Now more than ever. Post-acute clinicians should initiate these discussions with their patients. At U.S. Post-Acute Care, our clinical team is committed to regular goals of care conversations with each seriously ill patient. We help our patients to think through their goals and express what's most important to them. Now we can develop a care plan that aligns with their goals and their values. Using a technique first developed by Ariadne Labs, these structured conversations have shown meaningful improvements in the quality, cost, and effectiveness of care. 
Our Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Kevin Henning, is highly committed to making the Goals of Care conversation a foundation of effective care for our clinical team. At US Post-Acute Care, that's what we think. Now we'd like to know what you think. You can reach us at uspostacutecare.com or on LinkedIn, and Dr. Henning will be happy to respond. Thanks for listening. Well, our next discussion goes to a very different topic. I was amazed to see that this paper was in there. Maybe I shouldn't be amazed, Dr. Sloan uh, and Dr. Brown. Maybe maybe this is just the value add that JAMDA brings, but um, it's on driving. Uh, and it's on driving and cognitive impairment, which has nothing to do with post-acute and long-term care necessarily. But... Um, I was pleasantly surprised to see it. It's a great article. Um, Dr. Brown, tell us a little bit more about it. I think this is right up the alley of um, long-term care. I don't know. In my the, the community I work in, I have probably filed more paperwork around safe driving there than in my outpatient practice. Huh. Maybe wow. because the staff is much more aware and clues me in quicker than a family member might who has to deal with other repercussions. I'm not sure. So wow. I, I thought it was very appropriate. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> well, if I could add, as, a, one of the, as one of the editors of JAMDA, the way we think about JAMDA's focus is not just people who are in formal long-term care settings, but people who have some of the same conditions that put them at risk for or need you know, care at home. And MCI fits into the category of people who you know are at high risk for post-acute long-term care. So we're looking at the, the risk trajectory as well as the people who are already there. Wonderful clarification. Um, really appreciate that. So Dr. Brown, tell us about this article. Sure. Um, again, I thought it was it was quite um, interesting. I've had my share of difficult conversations about taking away a patient's keys over the years. And so I've also sat with the concern for causing individual isolation and the result and potential for depression when they're overall doing all right, but just forgetful, but we're taking away their keys. So um, the question is, is real and valid and part of the care that we provide. It seems intuitive that dementia increases the risk of unsafe driving, but it's less apparent in preclinical stages like mild cognitive impairment. What's the outcome? Unfortunately, there's been limited detailed data on patterns of driving errors associated with mild cognitive impairment to date. So this observational work discussed and examined whether drivers with mild cognitive impairment exhibit different on-road air profiles when compared with cognitively normal older drivers. They looked at approximately 300 licensed older drivers with a mean age of around 75 and a half and asked that they would complete a health and driving history survey, a neuropsychological test, and an on-road driving assessment, which included a driver-instructed and self-navigation components. Those driving assessors were brave. They were blinded to the participants' um, cognitive status. Wow. Not sure I'd be signing up for that, but alas, here we as are. As long as the participants weren't blinded. That's, that's the important <laughs> part. <laughs> so the participants were categorized as safe or unsafe based on a validated on-road safety scale. 
and as having mild cognitive impairment based on International Working Group diagnostic criteria. Compared with safe, cognitively normal drivers, safe, mild, mild cognitive impairment drivers showed a similar pattern of errors in different driving contexts. Compared with safe, cognitively normal drivers, unsafe, cognitively normal drivers were more likely to make errors in observation, speed control, lane position, and approach, and at stop or um, giveaway signs, lane changes, and curved driving. So that's the, those are the differences between safe and unsafe cognitively normal drivers. Hmm. Unsafe mild cognitive impairment drivers had additional difficulties at intersections, roundabouts, parking, straight driving, and under self-navigation conditions. A higher proportion of unsafe mild cognitive impairment drivers had multi-domain subtype than safe mild cognitive impairment drivers. So, Bottom line, among safe drivers, mild cognitive impairment and cognitively normal drivers exhibit similar on-road air profiles, suggesting that driver restrictions based on mild cognitive impairment status alone are not warranted. However, formal evaluation is recommended in such cases, as there's evidence that drivers with multiple domains of cognitive impairment may require additional interventions to support safe driving. I love this article, and I, I love this article because it helps reinforce um, what, at least up here in Massachusetts, we try to do on a regular basis. Um, we try to solicit our occupational health colleagues who uh, provide uh, driving evaluations, um, not so much to test what someone's lacking, but to empower them to be stronger uh, as they can. And so this just kind of says, you know, even if you have MCI, um, you still may be a vital driver and let's, let's evaluate you and let's just make sure that's true. I, I think that's, um, I think that's empowering. I think it's good. I think it's great. I, I walk away from this article with a different, a different mindset. I think um, if a person can be evaluated and still felt to be safe on the road. That really opens up in, in non-COVID times, I suppose, but it really opens up opportunity for being engaged in meaningful ways to maintain other portions of their health. So um, I thought it was great work. So our last topic takes us to the holy grail of geriatric medicine. Uh, and it has to do with falls and predicting falls in the long-term care uh, environment. Um, a frustrating topic for all of us, a topic that has been reintroduced many times, a topic that is heralded by JAMDA, um, especially over the, the past years. Dr. Sloan, uh, in the February 2021 issue of JAMDA, um, what more do we learn about predicting falls in the long-term care setting? Well, Wayne, I just share your uh, <laughs> tiredness with you know, falls as a topic and frustration with falls as something that, you know, is very hard to find anything new about. The Holy Grail. This study actually had some interesting findings. Mm. Um, it asked the perennial question, what is the best way to identify nursing home residents who are at highest risk of falling? It's a large study, involved 420 residents from 15 nursing homes and the staff who cared for them. 
The investigators gathered at baseline fall risk predictions based on several risk tools that I had never heard of and the opinions of a variety of nursing home staff. They also gathered baseline clinical information about this cohort. All participating patients were followed for six months with staff being especially careful to document all falls. The study was done in Belgium, not here, but the residents looked just like ours. The mean age was 86, 73% were female. Average number of months at the nursing home was 20. The majority had cognitive impairment with a mean MMSC score of 18.6 and it's wide standard deviation, meaning a wide range of cognitive abilities. Um, these 420 nursing home residents had 658 falls over a six month study period. Almost exactly half of them, 50.2%, fell and the other didn't. And this is really good from a statistical perspective because if you have a 50-50 split between whatever your outcome is, in this case, fallers and non-fallers, that gives you the greatest statistical power for making comparisons between the two groups. Okay, so you got a 50-50 split. So what did they do from that? Well, they found that among the baseline characteristics, falls were significantly associated with cognitive impairment, slower performance on the timed up and go test, and a prior history of falling. None of this is surprising, of course, but it's a good reminder that these factors help identify higher risk individuals. What's more interesting is that the two fall risk screener questionnaires were no better than just asking if the patient had fallen in the past year, which suggests that interview tools are not useful in this population. In other words, if you want to assess fall risk in the post-acute and long-term care setting, just look at their falls history and assess their cognitive status. If you want to do more, go straight to a performance test and don't bother asking other questions. So I have to tell you, uh, Dr. Sloan, uh, from my time as a primary care physician, I thought there was a, a, a conspiracy because my, um, my older adults who would come in to see me, main question was, have you had a fall? And they would all say no. Um, and of course, many of them had had falls. So I thought it was very interesting that um, the questionnaires didn't work because the direct question doesn't work either. <laughs> well, yeah, but you know, a year ago, I had two, well, actually I had three falls in the same year, you know, and I thought, oh, if somebody asked me about my falls, I'm going to be in trouble. But you know, <laughs> one of them I'm riding on my bike in a, in a groundhog runs between the leg, you know, the the wheels of my bike and so I fell over you know and there were things like that or uh, and, you know, a, yeah. a, a colleague of mine had two patients report their falls in the same week you know one of them fell getting off the toilet the other one fell climbing up the Mexican pyramids oh jeez <laughs> so that's the trouble with falls now here yeah. in the post-acute long-term care setting you know it's it's a little bit different but still there are falls and there are falls and there are issues around them and of course, what we're worried about is, of course, the risk associated with fracture. But anyway, we're trying to assess risk. So the study next compared the estimates of various types of staff members regarding whether or not they felt the resident was at high risk for falling. And this is where it got really interesting. The most sensitive measure was a past history of falling. It was a mm -hmm. sensitivity of 81% at one month and declining to 69% at six months. The greatest specificity came from asking a physical therapist. Now, I have to explain this. Physical therapists tended to estimate falls risk lower than everybody else. 
uh, and even lower than the false history. So the sensitivity of their estimates was low, but they had high specificity. Mm -hmm. This means that if a physical therapist is worried, we should take them seriously. Right. Nursing assistants were actually a lot like physical therapists in their predictions. But registered nurses stood out as being much more likely to raise concerns of a fall risk. They were very sensitive. So the conclusion of this is that, first of all, neither risk instruments nor professional opinion, nor the, for that matter, false history is all that predictive, particularly when you get three or six months out. If you want to identify the smallest group at the greatest risk, ask a physical therapist. If you want to identify the largest group at risk, ask a registered nurse. Based on these results, I would expect nurses to be particularly worried about safety and therefore to discourage ambulation mobility more than physical therapists who tend to place more priority on independence and empowerment. Um, these are, of course, generalizations, but worth keeping in mind when opinions differ. Wow. So it, it's really reinforcing what what those of us who uh, in the in the skilled nursing setting do anyway talk to the physical therapist and talk to the nurses taking care of your patients and residents. But the nursing assistant turns out will be a lot like a physical therapist. They, they are more for empowerment, apparently, according to this study, than kind of supervisory nurses tend to be. That, that gives an awesome taste of the February, 2021 issue of JAMDA. Uh, under the leadership of co-editors-in-chief, Drs. Philip Sloan and Cheryl Zimmerman, and with the support of editors like Dr. Mallory Brown, the Journal of the American Medical Director Association continues to be an impactful resource in post-acute and long-term care and beyond. Take a look at the February 2021 issue. Dr. Sloan and Dr. Brown, thank you so much for spending your time with JAMDA on the go. Thank, thank you, Wayne. Thank you. This was great. References for this podcast can be found at www.jamda.com. Until next time, I'm Dr. Wayne Saltzman for JAMDA on the go. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. If you are a physician and interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, go to our new learning management system at apex.paltc.org. Click on podcast and follow the link to this latest episode. Thank you.